Good evening and welcome to this Gresham lecture, which I've called The Ethics of Surgical Innovation. My name is Roger Niebohm. Um, I'm Professor of Surgical Education and Engagement Science at Imperial College London, and I'm Visiting Professor in Medical Education here at Gresham College. A hundred years ago, surgery almost everywhere would have looked pretty much like this. This is a painting of an operation in a casualty clearing station during the First World War. And we can see a group of people clustered around a patient under anaesthetic. We can see the anaesthetic machine. We see a, a tray full of instruments. And we see a close-knit team of people who are going to be opening up a patient and looking directly at what's inside. hundred years later, now, we may, might see something like this. This is robot-assisted surgery. So on the right of the picture, we have the patient surrounded by the arms of a, of a robot. And on the left of the picture, we see the surgeon who's carrying out the operation. That surgeon might be in the same room as in this case, or they might be in another part of the same building, or another town, or indeed another country. And what I'm going to do in this lecture is explore some of the changes that have happened over that 100 years or slightly more since we started. And quite a lot has happened over the course of my own career, which has not been 100 years, but it did start quite a while ago in 1977 when I qualified as a doctor. Now, 43 years later, all sorts of things have happened, and a lot of those things have been, they've been to do with the practices of surgery. They've been technological developments. Over the course of those decades, there have been extraordinary strides in imaging, in energy sources, in, in, in fibre optics, in all kinds of things that have transformed the landscape. But there have been other changes too. There have been social changes, very big changes in the relationships between the medical profession and patients, between the cl clinicians and society more generally. And I think looking back... Um, when I qualified, there was a sense that how I found things was how things had always been, or for a very long time. There was a sense of stability, authority, trust in experts, a general sense that, that everything was for the best, and you could safely leave things in the hands of, of clinicians particularly. And now I think the landscape's very different for all sorts of Reasons there have been fracture lines and fissures in that in that relationship. There's instability. There's unease. There's a sense of, I think, a sense of disquiet. And against that background, is what I've been thinking of as a, as a kind of arc of innovation, because there has always been innovation, and I'm quite sure there always will be innovation. But that arc goes something like this: um, something new comes along. It might be keyhole surgery. It might be robot-assisted surgery. It might be some of the things in the distant future that we don't yet know about. Um, but fairly soon and surprisingly quickly often, that new turns into the new normal. And then a while after that, it becomes old and the cycle repeats itself. And so I think having a sense of how that process unfolds is a useful place to start. And so I'm going to take you to a public engagement event that my colleagues and I at Imperial College um, led, which we called the Time Travelling Operating Theatre. And the idea was to give members of the public 
a sense of how things had changed over the last 100, 120 years. And we showed a snapshot of three moments in surgical time. The first one was 1884. Now, of course, nobody who was alive then is alive now, but there is a lot of documentary evidence of how surgery was at the time. And in a moment, I'm going to show you uh, the first of three very short minute or so video clips to give a sense of what was going on. So here we're in the Science Museum. We've set up, um, we've, we've set up a, a replica of the kind of surgery that would have happened in the late 19th century. It would have happened in somebody's home um, because that was the safest place to have surgery. It would have been in the morning because it needed natural light. And you can see a whole lot of people around the background, around the edges, those are the members of the public. But in the centre, we have the operating team. We have the operating surgeon, Opsitim, the nurse. Uh, with his back to us is the chloroformist, giving ether to the patient, keeping the patient asleep and often going to sleep himself because of inhaling all those fumes. Um, and you can see that nobody is wearing gowns or gloves. And this is based as closely as we could on a, a well-documented case uh, of, uh, of, of Beattie and Cullingworth. Alice Beattie was a, a young woman. She was in her early 20s. Um, and this was just at the time of what was called ovariotomies. Essentially, abdominal surgery had just become sufficiently safe to be routine. And this young lady had a, a, a swelling of one of her ovaries. She hadn't had any children. She wanted children. So she, told, she gave the surgeon um, explicit instructions that whatever was the state of the other ovary, he should leave it inside. But he actually took both ovaries out. So she took him to court and after a very long um, case, which was reported extensively in the medical journal, The Lancet, the court found in favour of Mr Cullingworth, the surgeon. But it gave us a lot of, of sort of contextual information. And so in conjunction with the historian, we tried to piece together what surgery might have looked like at the time. And here's how it starts. So we get a sense not only of the technical procedures, but of the, the hierarchy, if you like, the, the social setting of the clinical team. Nobody's saying very much. The surgeon is just issuing instructions. Things are being handed from one person to another. hundred years later, things are very different. This is obviously an operating theatre. This is the kind of surgery I encountered when I was doing my own surgical training and then becoming a consultant. It was the kind of operation that was very common at the time, removal of a gallbladder, patient's gallbladder. Um, and we're going to join this team just for a few minutes as we see a very different kind of social arrangement. This is the uh, operating surgeon over here. He's a man, as was very commonly the case. Opposite him, the scrub nurse, in this case a woman, also very common in the background, the anaesthetist, and then more, more um, other members of the, the wider surgical team, including medical students. And again, visitors round the outside. So we join them just for a few minutes as we see um, that operation. And so there is movement of, of instruments and objects between the members of the team. Um, 
drawing in the students into the conversation, perhaps asking them questions, quizzing them, and so on. Very familiar to, to many surgeons of, 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 of that generation. And, and then bringing us much more up to date, the kind of thing that we would see in an operating theatre nowadays. So it looks very different. Um, this is the surgeon here, the, the lead surgeon. Opposite her is the scrub nurse, in this case a man. There, uh, the anaesthetist is over there on the, on the left. Um, and the operation is a keyhole surgery operation, so they're not looking directly into the patient's insides. They're watching everything on a screen over there in the middle. And when we join this one, we see that there's a different dynamic too. There is, there is music, there are mobile phones. Things are very different. So a lot of things have happened, and so if we look back at this diagram, we can see that these are some of the things I talked about in the middle, those technical and social changes. But although all this has been encompassed with my own, within my own medical career from 1977 till now, we actually have access to, to memories that go much further than that. Um, now, King George VI, the, 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 the Queen's father, had part of one of his lungs removed in 1951. I wasn't born in 1951, but I vaguely knew about this. And then a couple of years ago, I met Miss Sarah Minter. Now, when I met her, Sarah Minter was 97 years old. She died last year at the age of 101. And Sarah Minter was the, the, the senior theatre sister who was invited, well, commanded, to set up an operating theatre in one of the large bedrooms in Buckingham Palace for the operation to take out one of the lungs of the king. And I asked her what it was like when, when that happened. And here she is describing the moment when Sir Clement Price Thomas, the thoracic surgeon, came into her office. He came to me one Saturday. I mean, we didn't know, I didn't know the king was ill. And, uh, and he said, shut my office door, and he said, uh, um, I have to operate on the king. And he said the authorities of the palace won't allow him to um, go into hospital. They said the king can't go into hospital. And so we've got to do it. Would you, would you set up a, an operating theatre in Buckingham Palace? <laughs> I said, well, if that's what you want, yes, sir. I mean, you know, we didn't argue. So I think this says all sorts of things. It, it, it points to, to the very idea of setting up an operating theatre in a bedroom in Buckingham Palace. But I think it's a different social relationship. He asks her to do that. She says, you didn't argue. You just said yes. So she said, yes, sir, and did it. So many things have changed, but, but some of these things are within living memory. So let's start briefly by looking at, at open surgery, the kind of uh, the kind of surgery I started off with. Um, and as I said, when I was learning to take out gallbladders, it seemed to me that things had always been done in the way that they were at that moment. Um, and actually looking back um, at the records, in many ways that was the case. This is a clip from the 1920s uh, of a, a gallbladder operation with, by Mortimer Wolfe, leading surgeon at the time. Um, and the surgeons in the audience will probably recognise pretty much exactly the same steps in the 1920s as Professor Ellis, 30 or 40 years later, was showing in a video of the same procedure for medical students. Um, and so here we are, we're having a, an example of an open operation. In this presentation, the cholecystectomy on a middle-aged lady with multiple gauze. The peritoneum opened over the duct system carefully dissected away 
And this is helped by a Leahy swab, a small swab held in an artery forceps. So he explains the, the, the steps of this operation. And when I was learning this operation in the 1980s, it seemed to me that gallbladders had always been taken out that way, and they always would be. But just around the corner was the first major upheaval that I want to talk about today, the introduction of keyhole surgery. And this was pioneered by some very interesting people, one of whom I, I explored his story in, in a previous Gresham lecture. He's Mr John Wickham. He was a consultant urologist, and he was a pioneer of of keyhole surgery, of using small rigid instruments to make a tiny hole and then do something like removing a, a stone. Um, and, and not only did he develop new technologies, new approaches, but new ways of working with his team. So here on the top right is the scrub nurse he worked with for many, many years at the bottom, an interventional radiologist he worked very closely with and an instrument manufacturer, reconfiguring the idea of surgical teamwork and having a vision that to take out a tiny stone, you might not need a big operation like this, but you could, as he did when he carried out the first percutaneous nephrolithotomy, the first taking out a kidney stone through a tiny hole rather than a big incision in the UK, um, and he showed that that was possible. And I remember him telling me when I talked to him about it, I said, what about your patients with this new stuff? And they said, they said, Mr Wickham, this sounds great, please do it on me. They didn't really know what it was that he was doing, but they thought it would be a good idea. It sounded good, they trusted him. They said, go ahead, so he did. And, and I think that approach is something that is very different nowadays, and we're going to explore that later in the talk. And Mr Wickham was prescient. He, he was doing this stuff for taking out kidney stones. But here he is in 1987 writing an editorial in the British Medical Journal where he says, it seems extraordinary that general surgeons have not yet seized on the operative potential of the laparoscope. That's the instrument for taking out these stones. In 1987, two years later, things were beginning to change and a year or two after that, the whole thing had changed forever. It became routine to do to start doing operations in a completely different way, where um, the surgeons, instead of making a, a hole and seeing directly what's inside the patient, are using uh, rigid instruments introduced through small holes. They're working in a different kind of team where they're looking not at the patient but directly but at a screen. And you can see in this schematic diagram here that the instruments are going through the patient's abdominal wall into the cavity and being able to do things. And it's a different kind of sense. In the operating theatre, the light looks different, the focus is different, it's about screens, it's about a different approach to surgery. And for a long time, that seemed as if that was, um, that was, that was how things were done. But then um, in 2000, in August 2000, uh, I was invited to be in the operating theatre to watch Professor Lord Aradazi, the Professor of Surgery at St Mary's Hospital, where I'd just started working, carry out the UK's first robot-assisted laparoscopic cholecystectomy, so the first robot-assisted um, procedure to take out a gallbladder by keyhole surgery. That was in September 2000, uh, 2000 using... Uh, uh, some technology we'll hear a lot more about in a minute called the Da Vinci robot where essentially somebody sits at a console in one place and then the operation takes place um, in, a, in another place. Um, 17 years later, 2017, that Da Vinci robot, which for many years was the only one in the UK, became an accession of the London Science Museum. And so I'm going to show you a very brief clip 
of a reenactment by Lord Darcy of that operation from 17 years earlier with the team he was working with at the time, just to give you a sense of what that robot is like. That we used in open surgery, a scissors, no different than the scissors you have at home. So we use these inside through a big incision. We cut whatever we have to cut. We substituted those with exactly the same instrument, but about a, a foot longer, but fine. So it goes in through a tiny hole. That is what we call keyhole surgery. Then came the robot instruments. And you're gonna see these working. These start moving into all sorts of different directions. So they have exactly as what the human wrist movement is. We call those six degree freedom of movement. So you can actually simulate the whole human wrist. Where with this one, there is no human wrist. It just rotates that way. It doesn't have any tip at the end that turns around. So first of all, you switch on the robot. And the two instruments, I hold them. I don't know if you're gonna see them on the camera. They're like two tweezers. Yeah. So I don't know if you're seeing the picture. So that's the liver. Yep, we're seeing the picture. That's the gallbladder, which has bile. If you've had a rough night, we know what a bile is. The gallbladder drains through a tiny duct here, which we call the cystic duct, into the bile duct here. So during the operation, you need to be very careful. You don't damage any ducts in here, because that won't be good. Now, do you remember what I said to you about the six degree of freedom of movement? You can see how these instruments are moving. Isn't that beautiful? Now, you couldn't do this with keyhole surgery because the instruments were straight. So, a glimpse of what robotic surgery, robot-assisted surgery offered when it first came in. So, so, we've looked at a couple of examples of that process of moving from being very new to being becoming normal and then, um, and then becoming old, and, and looked at this compass of, of the many things that have happened since... 100 years ago when all surgery was open surgery and that's how it seemed as if it always would be. So before we move on, I, I need to acknowledge um, Dr Sharon Weldon and, and Dr Harriet Paul Freeman who helped me develop the uh, Time Travelling Operating Theatre, Dr Paul Craddock who has done a lot of the filming um, that, I've, that I've shown and much else besides. Um, and now we're going to move to the second part of this lecture because I'm going to introduce... Um, someone who's fascinated by the opportunities provided by new surgical technologies and how they can be incorporated into healthcare systems. He's a colleague of mine at Imperial College London. He's a consultant surgeon who specialises in treating cancers of the stomach and the gullet. And as an academic, he researches molecular and clinical predictors of outcome in patients with esophageal cancer. So please join me in welcoming Mr Chris Peters. Chris, welcome to the lecture. Thank you, Thank you very much, Roger, and thank you for allowing me to be part of this uh, fantastic session this evening. Um, so, I am slightly younger than Roger. Uh, I, I'm getting grey, though, so I'm catching up rapidly. And I went to medical school in 1996, and laparoscopic surgery has been around for my entire career, but that doesn't mean it's been static. The, when I was at medical school, the, the range of operations that could be done via a keyhole method was relatively discreet and relatively simple and what I've seen in my career is, a, is an exponential increase in what we consider possible via keyhole um, and Roger's already very nicely explained what keyhole surgery is, it's this transition of the instruments through the abdominal wall 
uh, operating on these organs inside the abdominal cavity. But, but what's happened in my surgical career is the invention of, of surgical robots. And I'm just going to very briefly explain a little bit more what they are and where they came from before Roger and I have a, a conversation about, about where we think we're headed in this field. Uh, this was, for, for very, very many years, the, the only robot on the block. And the reason for that is it spun out of an American defence programme um, to develop a battlefield robot. And the idea was that this robot could be uh, in Afghanistan or Iraq, and your surgeon, who is expensive and vulnerable and, and has a habit of dying if he gets shot, is sitting in a hospital in America and can deliver high-quality surgical care from the other side of the world. But what was interesting is it completely failed at that purpose. And it failed at that purpose because this is far too complex, it's far too difficult to set up, and it's far too temperamental to put in the middle of a battlefield. So what's interesting is this then became a solution looking for a problem. And the problem was generated to be whether this robotic setup could end up being a better way of performing operations, and we'll come to that a little bit more later on. Um, but fundamentally, uh, this system was the only one on the market, but for many, many years because of patents. It had the complete patent stranglehold on the, on the, on the uh, technology, on the idea of surgical robotics, and we have literally only in the last few years started being able to have competitors for this. So I'm now going to show you a video of the Da Vinci system in action, and then I'll explain to you what you're seeing, and that will give you a, a feel for what we're talking about for the remainder of this session. So this is the Da Vinci system. What it consists of is a console, which is where the surgeon would sit, and then the robot, which is by the patient, which has robotic arms. This console provides 3D vision, so it, you sit leaning into it. There's two, two screens, one for each eye, and then you have the manipulators that Professor Lord Darcy showed you. And then the instruments are attached to these robotic arms, which then manipulate the instruments, pushing them in and out. And then at the end of the instrument, you have this articulated wrist, as, as, as Lord Darcy called it, um, which is operated by the surgeon. So you can see here, these are, this is two, this, believe it or not, this is two screens. It's a pincer movement, so when you move your fingers open and out, then the instrument moves open and out. And this is a lovely illustration of how these hand movements by the surgeon are being perfectly replicated by this instrument. One of the benefits of robotics is you can take tremor out of your movement. You can scale down your movement. So a very large movement by your hand can be converted into a very small movement by the needle if you're doing something such as microscopic stitching. Um, and... You're sitting at a console away from the patient, normally in the same room. However, that's changing. People can, there has been operations done across the Atlantic. The question is, is there a benefit to that? I talked about the fact that the Da Vinci system was the only one on the market for a long time. Um, there are now a, a large number of robots either having achieved uh, market presence or about to achieve market presence. And as with most things like mobile phones, you could say the, the, the Da Vinci is a bit of a Nokia. Uh, and the new ones coming through look a bit sexier, a bit sleeker. Uh, this is the uh, CMR, is a Cambridge company, it used to be Cambridge Medical Robotics. And this is their Versus system, which is about to go live in hospitals on patients. And it's a slightly different design. Instead of one big octopus-like robot that sort of sits on top of the patient, this has got separate arms um, that individually hold. And instead of it being a encompassing hood type arrangement for the surgeon. Um, the surgeon sits looking at a 3D screen like 
some people bought for TVs a while ago before the technology was pretty much abandoned. But again, there's still a console there. Uh, there are a number of these. Um, the big one that's coming to the market soon is the one that's a combination of Google and a massive surgical company called Ethicon, or Johnson Johnson, which is a Verb product. Um, but this is where we are at the moment on the cusp of an expansion of the robots in the market. Thank you. Excellent. So, um, yeah, brilliant. Can we, uh, can we have the screen off, please? Um, well, thank you, Chris. Um, so that's really setting the scene, isn't it, with, with where we've come from and where we are now. I mean, I guess the, the question a lot of people will be thinking of is where, where, where next, because it sounds as if this, isn't a, this hasn't settled down completely, new things are coming up. Exactly. One of the issues we've had with robotics is with any new technology, you have to ask yourself, is it better than what we've got at the moment? And that's true of a TV, it's true of a mobile phone, it's true of a car. And then the same is true of robotics. And because there was only one uh, robot manufacturer in the field, it was quite expensive. Um, and the majority of the work in robotic surgery has been done in prostate cancer for various reasons. And even in prostate cancer, there has been a struggle to demonstrate better outcomes for patients. Um, there are some studies that showed an advantage, some studies that did not. Therefore, there's always been an argument amongst many surgeons that robotics is a toy for the so, so when you said it was a solution looking for a problem, is there a sense that it's still a solution looking for a problem? There was, and I think part of that was the fact that if your bar is that the outcomes are better for patients, then you have to really justify that to the extra cost. And, and if it's costing £10,000 more an operation, yeah. then you really have to be sure that that patient is getting and at the moment, we're not sure. And we're saying. not necessarily sure. So it could there be... are some studies that show a benefit, some that don't. It's a mixed picture. But that's looking at very specifically one thing, which is our outcomes benefit. So when you say outcomes, you mean whether their cancer's got rid of or whether they get infections or whatever? Whether they recover quickly. Yeah, 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 I see. And what's changing is that with the new robots coming to the market, the, the, the economic landscape is changing because some of those new robots have different models of business whereby... The per case costs are lower. Um, some of them believe that inherently the technology is going to get cheaper, and therefore there may be other benefits to robots that we haven't thought about. Oh, I see. So, so if it's if it's prohibitively expensive, you have to have a really good case to use it. But if it doesn't cost any more than what's there already, you can maybe start to think about it differently. Is that what you exactly mean? Exactly right. Yeah. Because one of the huge benefits of robotic surgery in my experience, is, is the ergonomics of robotic surgery. So say a bit about that. So there is a surgeon's stoop that you'll often see older surgeons would have where they have a kind of, uh, kind of hooked neck and a, and a sort of humped shoulders. And the incidence of, of shoulder pain and back pain in surgeons is very, very high. And it is known that it shortens a surgeon's working lifespan. And it can reduce their enjoyment of surgery. And it can... Uh, reduce how efficiently they can work because they're uncomfortable, they're in pain. And one of the big benefits of robotic surgery is that you can be operating in a far more ergonomic position, far more comfortable, um, and, and in a far more less stressful way for the body. Because I mean, that business of surgical strain, that wasn't just keyhole surgery, was it? I remember mm -hmm. uh, vividly sort of hanging on to retractors for hours and mm -hmm. sort of being at the wrong height for ages because I was working with a surgeon who was either shorter or taller than me or something. And then a lot of that spilled over into keyhole surgery, didn't it? Where exactly. Where people exactly. were in peculiar positions. Exactly, exactly. So, so how does robotic surgery change that then? Well, when you're sitting at the console, the consoles are designed to be in a perfect ergonomic position. So you, you're sitting in a nice, very well-designed chair. 
you have a, a, the screen at the perfect eye height for you, you often have um, uh, elbow rests and you're operating in a very neutral position that's very comfortable. The other thing you can do is what's called clutch out the instruments. So if you're operating on the extreme of your arm movements, which is very uncomfortable via keyhole, you're often operating like this for long periods of time, which causes a great deal of shoulder pain. You can deactivate the instruments, bring your controllers back into the middle and then reactivate them. And even if the instruments are coming in from a funny angle, you're back to being in a nice neutral position again. And, and so presumably, because you're not having to be scrubbed up, you, you can do things that are independent of what's happening at the patient. Exactly, exactly. And so you can organise it so that it works best for you rather than for the exactly. patient. Yeah. And you can, if you want to take a break uh, for just a stretch, you can literally leave the instruments exactly where they are, deactivate them, let go, move your shoulders around, then go back in, which if you're actually physically holding the instruments, you'd never be able to do. Because, I mean, when I, was, when I was doing surgery, I'm not doing it now, as you know, but when I was doing surgery, nobody ever talked about things like strain or ergonomics. It was just you put up with what it was. Mm -hmm. is, is this something that, that people are becoming more aware of these days? There are. Uh, you know, doctor burnout is, is a big issue, mm. and, and yeah. surgeons have a specific issue, which is not just the mental burnout, it's the, it's the physical burnout. Mm. When I was a trainee um, doing a, a period of bariatric surgery, which was weight loss surgery, I ended up with a shoulder problem that meant for six months I was avoiding going to operating theatre because it hurt me so much. And We just had our little boy and yeah. I couldn't pick him up without yeah. hurting myself. Yeah. I couldn't drive my car because it was hurting me to change gear. Yeah. And, and that sort of, for a year of my life, it was a major problem until I got it treated. And, and if robotic surgery can help get rid of that, that's a, that's a benefit that we perhaps haven't really thought about enough. Yeah, so it's not an obvious benefit. Mm -hmm. when, when we think of, is it going to make survival rates higher or something, mm -hmm. these are different kinds of benefits. Mm -hmm. um, but there's another thing I wanted to I wanted to start thinking about, which is when I was talking to these um, now very elderly and uh, um, pioneers of keyhole surgery, they the ones who started off keyhole surgery um, had spent quite a long time sort of developing the technique and and I, I guess making mistakes and learning how to put them right, mm -hmm. and so by the time they wrote these things up and then other people took them on. The people who took them on hadn't had that experience of dealing with complications or uh -huh, whatever. Uh -huh. And they, they got into really big problems, didn't they? Uh -huh. uh, and I just wondered what you thought about if there's anything like that around robotic surgery. Yeah. One of the things that we, we're trying to do better and the field is definitely doing better is work out how you train people in robotic mm. surgery. And, and, and the vast majority of the robotic companies, uh, in fact all of them, have very rigorous training standards whereby you have uh, a period of simulator training, which is often entirely computer-based, as in there's not even a model. Uh, then you may do some animal lab training um, or cadaveric training on people who have donated their body to medical science. Um, and then you go into a very highly supervised um, section where you're starting your first inhuman operations but with a, what we call a preceptor with you to, to help to monitor you. The interesting thing is that, that what we see is that sometimes the types of complications you have is slightly different. So uh, the da Vinci system doesn't have what we call haptic feedback. Haptic feedback is whereby if I'm pressing on this table I can feel through my fingertips how hard I'm pressing on this table. If I'm pressing on this table with an, a laparoscopic instrument to some degree, I can feel the flex in the instrument and, and how hard I must be pressing. With the Da Vinci system, there is no physical feedback to your hands to let you know how hard you're pressing on things. And therefore, when you are on your learning curve, it's possible to inadvertently damage something because you don't know how hard you're pressing on it. 
or because your instrument is hot and you inadvertently touch something. So you could the go airways. through some sort of organ or something. Exactly. And that's a complication you'd never have open because mm. with open surgery, you know you're pressing on something too hard. You know that you might be in danger of doing that, but you don't have that with robotic surgery. So you sometimes find that the, the kind of complication ranges are different with robotic surgery conversion. But it does raise interesting questions, doesn't it? Because, I, again, talking to those <clears throat> early keyhole surgeons, they would say, well, of course, you know, um, if anything went wrong, then well, I'd just pull these instruments out, open the patient up, and I'd be back on safe ground. I'd know mm -hmm. where I was. Mm -hmm. I'd been doing open surgery for 30 years. I'd seen everything. I was comfortable. Mm. Um, but now, 30 years later, not everybody's as comfortable as they were mm -hmm. with doing open surgery. And I guess in you know, another mm -hmm. 10, 20 years' time, if most surgeons are spending most of their time not doing open surgery, yep. what does that say about where surgery, open surgery fits into the scheme of things? It, that's very difficult to predict because at the moment we think of the, the techniques of open surgery as being the building blocks of surgery on which everything else is based. Mm. So the ability to uh, clip a bleeding blood, blood vessel and tie it off, or the ability to join two bits of bowel together are kind of the fundamentals that you learn before you do anything else. And, and we still have that as part of our curriculum. And I think in some things like cancer surgery, there will always be a mixture of minimally invasive, either keyhole or robotic and, and open techniques. But there are surgeons, even now, who are so keyhole dominant that they are less comfortable in an open setting. And I think that as the keyhole or the robotic techniques get even better and better, then actually the times where you may need to convert to open, as in make a big cut, will actually become even more and more extreme and, and even more and more dangerous times. Yeah, and when and you have to do that, presumably it's because there's a really big problem. Exactly. And I think that's where we have to ensure that with our surgical curriculums mm. that we're yeah. not de-skilling our surgeons to the point that they couldn't deal with those emergencies yeah. as, a, as, an open, as an open procedure. But I guess, I mean, with, with robot-assisted surgery, you're presumably getting more and more experience in mm -hmm. how to deal with complications mm -hmm. using that technology. Exactly, exactly. But to some degree, when you have very major bleeding... Uh, which may cause uh, view issues because you get uh, sort of what we call a James Bond view where the, the blood hits the screen and you can't see anything else um, or very major vessel injuries whereby you need significant pressure to stop yeah, it above yeah. which the robot could yes. deliver. Um, that's when maybe the open surgery is still required. Yeah, yeah. So, so here we are with, with all sorts of with new possibilities. We, we've, got, we've got firmly established keyhole surgery. We've got new uh -huh. approaches with with robot-assisted surgery. Um, and I said when I was talking to Mr Wickham, he would say to his patients, here's a new technology, and they'd say, that sounds great, try it on me, please. Uh -huh. But things are very different now, it's 30 years uh -huh. later, uh -huh. even more. Tell me about that, because you must have these conversations with your patients all it the time. It is, and I think patients differ in their opinions about these things. There, there is a group of patients who like things that are new and interesting and, and rare and unusual that, that are not normally offered because they feel that that must make it cutting edge, exciting mm. and, and good. Um, and there's American hospitals who play on this. There's American hospitals who advertise themselves based on how many robots they have because that's perceived by the public as being a marker of how cutting edge they are. Um, so there are some surgeons where the moment you mention we, we do this a new way or we do this using a new technology, they will sign up for it and say that sounds fantastic because new is better. 
Um, and then there are a cohort of patients who are, are more um, nuanced in their opinion and who will say, well, what do you have the most experience of? How is it normally done? You know, do you have, and, and patients increasingly will ask, do you have evidence that this way of doing it is better than the other way of doing it? Mm. And then we have those discussions all the time. Yeah. And um, hernia repairs, for example, um, you can either have it done via an open cut or you can have it done keyhole. Um, and I often have very difficult conversations with patients about which of them is the best approach for them because yeah. the evidence is, is mixed. So it's a very nuanced thing. And so I suppose the evidence keeps changing. If, yeah. And as people are getting better at these things, then mm-hmm. the, the balance will shift. Exactly. But I mean, I suppose one of the other things is that you know, not, not everybody has access to surgical robots, do they? No, no, completely not. They are, at the moment, they are still very expensive. They're often bought via sort of big charitable donations for hospitals. You'll often see hospitals raising money to, to buy a new robot. Um, I suppose the question is, you know, we're, we're not at the point yet where we can say to patients that you are being harmed if you're not getting a robotic operation. Mm. Because what we know is mm. that a good open operation or a good keyhole operation is, is, is equivalent um, to the robotic operation. Um, and, and what we also know is actually, in, in, in certainly in my own field, so cancer of the esophagus and the stomach, what we know is that the benefits from having a minimally invasive operation may only last three to six months. And after that, if you can imagine your recovery from the operation, it's about equivalent if you have a minimally invasive or an open operation. So that's a keyhole surgery yeah, operation exactly. or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So I, I think at the moment, you know, if, if you're a patient going to a hospital and you can't be offered a robotic technique, it's not something to be anxious about. However, I think with all these things, the technology gets cheaper and cheaper. Yeah. And I think there will come a point not too far away where the robotic operations will be equivalent to the keyhole operations. And then that will be when the adoption picks oh, up. So it won't be a question of cost anymore because exactly. they'll be the same. Exactly. So, so just going back to what you said about the, the, the six months. So do you mean that after a, a, a minimally invasive operation, you get better quicker, yeah. but you don't necessarily live longer. It, it doesn't no, make any what, what I mean is, so um, what we know, an esophagectomy is a very invasive operation. It's taking, it's out, in, the taking out the esophagus normally for cancer, and it involves going into the abdomen and going into the chest. And we quote our patients, it takes a year to get over, and we have very good data for that. So if you say, when you have the operation, you drop your quality of life decreases, and then over the year, it will go back up to what it was before you had the operation. And that's the hit that you take mm-hmm. to try and have your cancer cured. What we know is that with, robotic, with, with minimally invasive surgery, keyhole or robotic, the initial hit is less. So you, you take an, a less of initial hit, but then you still take a year to get over the operation. And actually, the lines merge at about six months. So though you may, for the first few months, be worse with a big cut, mm. actually, after a few months, you're about the same, and then your recovery takes a year. Yeah, and so then it comes out of the wash, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. so, so, so you, you started off by saying that that robot-assisted surgery found a sort of natural home with prostates, and that's Uh sort of in the Uh pelvis, isn't it? Uh Deep, dark holes Uh difficult Uh to get at. Um, But again, as I was thinking about the the keyhole surgery, it started off, didn't it, with people doing a lot of uh, gallbladder Uh operations, Uh and then Uh gradually, 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 more and more things Uh have been done by keyhole surgery, Uh and Uh now it's it's the way of doing many, many operations. Uh Um, Is that happening with... Robots as It well, is. It is. And, and one of the things, as the technology is getting better, the flexibility of the systems is improving. So one of the reasons why pelvic surgery or gallbladder surgery lended itself quite well to these is because 
you have a fairly fixed view of what you're dealing with. So you're looking down into the pelvis and you don't move it very much. Or you're looking at the gallbladder and you don't move it very much. Whereas other operations, for example, removing the colon would require you to be continuously looking at a different corner of the abdomen. And with, and, and with the, the first robots, that was actually quite challenging because you, to move the robot around to different areas was quite difficult. But with the new systems, with the enhanced Da Vinci systems and with the new robots coming to the market, it's much easier to switch your field of views. Therefore, it becomes much more straightforward to do those sort of more complex operations. The, the optics quality increases. Mm. Um, the size of the robotic arms decreases, so it becomes much more flexible as a system. So, so all this is raising interesting ethical questions, isn't it, about, you know, we can do all this stuff, but should we mm -hmm. be doing it? Mm -hmm. and, and who should have access to it? And some units do and some units don't. Mm -hmm. And if you're a patient, how do you make sense of all of this? Mm -hmm. Because it's, I mean, it's pretty complicated, isn't it? A lot of it things is. to take into account. It is. I think ultimately, the, the, the simplest way to look back look at it is, Ultimately, what matters for the patient is, is the outcome. Mm. Is, uh, so if we, if we think about cancer, um, how likely are they to have been cured of their cancer yeah. and what's their chances of living 5, mm. 10, mm. the rest of their life? Mm. Uh, if it's gallbladder surgery, um, how likely are they to have their gallbladder removed without a major complication, without damaging the main tube draining the liver, which is a sort of catastrophic complication? Yeah. Um, so if you, if you distill it down to that, if... if the outcomes are equivalent, then you don't have to think too much about how you got there. If you're introducing a new technology, then the question is, can you be sure the outcomes are going to be as good during your learning curve? Or do you have to accept as a field yeah. that when new things are introduced, you may have more complications. Well, I guess for a you, you of can't time. know that at the very beginning, can right. you? Because it hasn't happened yet. I mean, exactly. it's very new. Exactly. And I think this is where the simulation training, this is where sort mm. of animal training is so vital. Because if you haven't demonstrated that you can do an operation safely in, in, in animals for a period of time and, and not have unintended consequences, yeah. um, then you shouldn't be going to, you shouldn't to, be doing shouldn't do, going to yeah. humans. Um, there, there, there are countries that. In Holland, they introduced keyhole surgery for esophageal surgery as a group. They sort of got together and decided to do it en masse. Um, and, and their published results showed that at the beginning when they were introducing it, their leak rate, so they're, they're, when we do the join, there's a risk of leak, which is maybe 5 to 10%. Their leak rate was about two or three times higher than it was using the conventional technique for a period of time before they got their technique right. And, and then, then now they do So I guess the question is, how do you, uh, you know, what is the relationship with the patients you're mm -hmm. operating on when, when either you know or you don't know, but you can probably predict mm. that there's going to be that time before you get as good exactly. with the new one as you were yeah, with the old one. Exactly. Especially when you might not have the data to be able to say to someone that mm. you're going to recover quicker yeah. or you're going to have a better yeah. operation. Yeah. And it's all about honesty. It's all about saying yeah. to patients that we're using yeah. a, a new device. We've used it in this number of people. We yes. think it's equivalent. We think it yeah. may be better for this, but we don't know. And then, and then being honest with people. But there's another thing. To, I mean, I was thinking when I was, when I was doing surgery, you know, that this was the kind of thing that we, kind of instruments that you used and if somebody invented a new one well it was pretty much like that one and you could mm -hmm. choose to use it or not just mm -hmm. as you choose but but now you've got these companies haven't you who mm -hmm. are creating these things mm -hmm. and they're providing training mm -hmm. for these things and so there's a there's a different element here presumably mm -hmm. which is a, another 
form of influence exactly. coming yeah. to bear yeah. on, on, on the clinicians. Exactly. So if I was your trainee, yeah. um, you know, back in, back in the early noughties, yes. um, you would have yeah. taught me how to use this device. Yeah. Mm. And this device may have been made by Smith, Sniff and Matthew, yeah. it may have been made by a million yeah. different companies, but you would have taught me to use yeah. it. One of the interesting things about robotic surgery is that the majority of people who are beginning a robotic program have to undergo the training program that's been set up by the company. And they're very rigorous, they're very well designed, they're very carefully crafted training programs, but, but they are a training program that the, the company are putting you through before you're able to start doing the cases in humans. So, so if it's now opened up and there are many companies making robots, it's not a question of training to be a robotic surgeon on one system and then you can use it on any other. You're trained on a particular system. Exactly, a platform. And it's not only the surgeons. In fact, the, the most important thing about the robotic training is actually the theatre staff, the scrub nurses, because they have to know how to set the robot up. They know have to know how to put the sterile covers on it. They have to know how to attach and detach the instruments. So it's actually, you know, it's very easy to be surgeon-centric. It's actually yeah, team-centric. The team, team have to be trained how thing. to do it. Yeah. And we, we don't know exactly what model these companies are going to do yet because actually only one of them has been uh, FDA-approved, the transenteric system, and, and is being used in, in NHS hospitals thus far. And they adopted a very similar programme with overseas training. We're assuming that the new robots coming on the market will do a similar thing, but it, it, it's far more down to the specific platform than key, even keyhole surgery. Yeah. Keyhole yeah. surgery, the camera is the camera, the instruments are similar. You don't need to, if I move to a different hospital, I can use any keyhole surgery stack, what we call it, the screen, the light source, etc. I don't have to be retrained how to use it. But the same is definitely not true of robots. And so who makes the decisions about which robotic system, if any, so this is, this is uh, at the moment, in the NHS, you have to make a business case to purchase a robotic system. What your um, hospital does, you mean, as a, as a group? It, it, well, as a group of, as, as, a, as a surgical group, yeah. you have to come to the conclusion you think you're going to benefit from a robot. Yeah. You have to decide now, you have to decide which robot you think you should have, and then you have to build a business case for it, and then you have to negotiate to, to get one. Um, and that's a brave new world because up until literally four years ago, there was only one robot. It was the Da Vinci system. So is that one so we saw, Lord so Darcy, using... Yeah, yeah. incredibly simple. You know, if you wanted a robot, you had to have a Da Vinci, and therefore you decided, you know, whether you could, you could afford a Da Vinci. Um, now there are two on the market, about to be three, then, you know, soon there'll be four, five, six, and then it will become a more, a more complicated world. But still, at the moment, we're, we're, we're talking about robot, robotic surgery for short, but mm -hmm. it's... It's, I mean, it's not truly robotic in the way that the no. robots make cars or anything, is it? It's robot-assisted. No. It's robot-assisted. And in reality, um, the difference is uh, with open surgery, um, you are touching the tissues with your hands and then manipulating the instruments directly. With keyhole or laparoscopic surgery, you are still manipulating the instrument directly, but you're manipulating the instrument from outside of the body with, uh, with the port going through the abdominal wall. And robotic surgery, you're still controlling the instrument directly, but you're, con you're uh, using a controller, and then the robotic arm is manipulating the instrument. And so so you're it's not doing further and further away. Exactly. So it's not doing anything that you're not telling it to do. And, and, and it can take out tremor. Yeah. It can scale down movements. Um, it can lock so that you can just rotate in one direction. But it's not, 
it's not a robot in the Isaac Asimov sense of so you can't making sort of leave decisions. It to it and, and, no, and, and, no. But, but do you think we might one day? That's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think everyone thinks that their job is safe from being taken over from computers until they are. Um, and I think, I think you know, we're on the cusp of taxi drivers yes, and lorry drivers yeah. um, being, you know, automated. Um, even in medicine, there are fields which... 10 years ago, I thought was safe that now they're looking at computerized um, versions of. So pathologists who look down a microscope at the tissue that we remove, there are now automated pathology systems that are showing that they can be as good as an experienced pathologist in making diagnosis. Radiology, so there's been some very prominent studies recently showing that um, uh, a computer can be as good at reading mammograms as a radiologist. So do I think... Am I arrogant enough to think as a surgeon that I'm protected from this? Um, and I don't know. I think one thing that AI systems haven't been able to do thus far is be creative, be artistic. And I think one of the things about surgery is that though we would like the operations to always follow a very set path and be utterly predictable, the nature of operations means that they're not like that. And, yeah. and there's often on-the-fly changes in the yeah, order really, that we do really things. The, 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 the previous Gresham lecture I gave a month or so ago was about improvisation mm -hmm. in medicine and, and music, and I was joined on the platform by a professor of classical improvisation, and we were looking mm -hmm. at... We were both of us, I think, agreeing that the ability to improvise was a characteristic of high levels of expert mm -hmm. performance. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you thought that robots would ever be able to improvise. I think that's the difficult bit of surgery that I find it difficult to imagine AI systems having creativity to alter how you do the operation. Because in the extreme circumstances, you may completely change how you're doing your operation, how you are reconstructing the patient. And that's something which you learn with experience and something as a, as a relatively junior consultant, I've been just three and a half years as a consultant, I still ask my boss, Professor George Hanna, to come in and help me in those situations. So yeah. whether a robotic system could do a simple, utterly predictable operation, but then the more complex cancer work remain the realms of a human being, I don't know. But, but it'd be interesting to see. I'm sure that... I'm sure that Google are out there trying to make me unemployed as we speak. So, so will you put on your, your futuristic spectacles? I mean, we started off by saying, you know, surgery in the First World War, surgery in the 1980s, mm -hmm. then Kiel surgery. Mm -hmm. Everyone thought that was the latest thing there mm -hmm. could ever be. Robotic surgery, same mm -hmm. sort of fanfare. You, you know, you've been a consultant for three or four years. Mm -hmm. When you've been a consultant for 23 or 24 mm -hmm. years, what do you think is going to be happening? So this, this is actually nicking um, what Verb, this, this new company, which is the formation of Google and, um, and Johnson Johnson, call Surgery 4.0. Um, so 1.0 was open surgery. 2.0 was keyhole laparoscopic surgery. 3.0 was the first robotics. And 4.0 is probably the most exciting thing where we're headed. And that's going to be um, basically augmenting your surgical operation with added information. So the idea being that you could overlay the imaging that you've done on the patient beforehand onto what you're looking at so that you can see where the cancer is, even if the cancer is in the middle of the liver. Or you can overlay onto what you're looking at to show where the major blood vessels are so that you can avoid them. Oh, so or, you're bringing together all sorts exactly. of different kinds of technologies. Or you can use... AI systems to assess how well you're doing your operations, 
to see whether there's areas where you could improve it. So you can analyze your videos and then they could come back with, well, you know, this part of the operation wasn't efficient. Mm. You were in the wrong plane, as we call it um, at this point. Mm. And I think that's where the future is going to lie, where we're able to do our operations with a lot more information than we have at the moment, which is effectively white light image. Mm -hmm. We're going to do our operations with more information. Yeah. And so you were, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting towards the end of our, our session, but I wanted to, to ask you a little bit more about, you, you, you said you, you were thinking about the art of surgery mm -hmm. and the creativity of it, because I mm -hmm. think a lot of people see surgery as a rather sort of instrumental kind of thing. I mean, it's there, it mm -hmm. needs to be done, and it's procedural. But mm -hmm. actually... I mean, I agree with you, but, but you're saying that, that there's a lot of sort of, not only that, that unpredictability, but, but that sense of, I don't know, that sense of, of flow and, uh, yeah. a, and a, a collective performance with other people in the team. Completely. Yeah, no, completely. I think, um, I think a lot of what we do is quite more like an art than, mm. than a science. And I think a lot of it is about teamwork. A lot of it is about... Um, having a team that you work with, I'm very lucky in terms of we normally have a fixed team of, of nurses and anaesthetists that we work with week in, week out. Mm. And we all know exactly how we work together. We know what we mm. do. We know how we do it. And, and, and it, it's a very slick, very well-oiled, it's like a professional sports team. Because that doesn't happen everywhere, does No. It? And I think if, if you do have to work with a different team, then... Again, the outcome may be the same for the patient, but, but how you get there is less smooth, is less mm. straightforward. It may be more disjointed. It may take longer. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that's where the, the teamwork is so unbelievably key. Mm. Yeah. So well, we've covered a lot of ground, but I think now's the time to, to open up the conversation to, uh, to questions from, uh, from all of you. So I think we've got a roving microphone. If um, anybody would like to start this over there. Gentlemen, good with their hands. And I wondered if these good surgeons who are good with their hands become good surgeons working with robots. Or is it, in fact, a different type of surgeon you need? You need a surgeon who's good with their thumbs. That, that, that's, a, that's, a, <laughs> no, that, that's a brilliant question. And actually, that's true of keyhole surgery as well. So to do keyhole surgery, you have to be able to turn a two-dimensional image on the screen into a 3D representation of the patient in your head. And some people are just unable to do that. And you sometimes see it when you're training, rarely, but you see it when you're training where... People will go to grab something with one of the instruments and you can see that they're five centimetres short because you can interpret the picture and work out this 3D model in your head. But they can't and they're grabbing at something and, and they're kind of five centimetres short. And with robotic surgery, it, there's a 3D picture, so that, that goes away. But it does require slightly different skill sets. And actually, one of the arguments with the da Vinci system was that if you were an open surgeon, used to doing things through big holes, the da Vinci system mimicked open surgery more than keyhole surgery. So actually, if you're an open surgeon, you could probably pick up da Vinci, the, the pincer-type movements, quicker than keyhole. The new systems coming to the market are actually going to use 
a multitude of different control systems. And some of the control systems are more like keyhole surgery, and some of them are very unusual and very innovative and completely different. So whether the skill sets will transfer across, we don't know yet, actually. We don't know. Thank you. There's a generation of young people coming through who've been playing Fortnite and <laughs> FIFA, <laughs> and they presumably are going to be particularly good at this. Well, actually, there's data to suggest that playing computer games immediately before a keyhole operation makes you do better in the keyhole operation. <laughs> Genuinely, it's thought that it stimulates the right areas of your mind to do that 2D to 3D conversion. And there's data to show that if you do a half an hour of playing on a computer game before doing an operation, you perform better. So, so have you incorporated that into your surgical practice? No. Yes, I get up early enough anyway. <laughs> I have to get up early enough to do a game of FIFA first. Okay. I think we've got time for another question. This one. Someone at the back. Two-part question. You mentioned uh, transatlantic operations, but you also said that somebody needs to be there in, in case you need to do open surgery uh, at a short notice. So how does that work? And the, if you just follow that on, to, you mentioned that some surgeons are doing uh, keyhole all the time. Do they go for annual uh, practice on open surgery? And if not, should they? So in terms of the first question, um, the actual setup of the robots is very technically challenging and requires a high degree of skill. So, for example, they have done the Da Vinci system transatlantic, but they had a surgical team based, I think it was France to America, and they had a surgical team in America who are the ones who set up, put the ports in, which are the tubes that go through the abdominal wall, connected all the instruments, got everything set up, and then a surgeon in France did the operation. Um, and, and I think that's why it, it's a little bit gimmicky. Um, it's difficult to think of an operation that is so um, exclusive that the only surgeon who can do it is in a different country and therefore there's a benefit to that setup. Um, in reality, um, having the surgeon in the same room improves communication. It allows that ability to convert to open, etc. So though that's technically possible with the fast broadband, etc., um, it's more of a gimmick than anything else, and, and certainly I can't think of an operation that only Mr. Smith in France could do, and the patient, you know, therefore has to have a tele-operation, as we call it. Um, in terms of the, the uh, open surgery, that, that's a very good question. We, we are, a, a, any doctor constantly undergoes a process of revalidation to make sure that they're up to date in their learning, that they're achieving good results, that their patients are happy with them, that their colleagues are happy with them. It's a five-year cycle. Um, and it doesn't at the moment include any sort of specific guidance around um, that you can still do open operations. And in, but in reality, most people have a fairly narrow field that they uh, do in terms of surgery. So they are a weight loss bariatric surgeon. And in reality, if they're doing enough of it, they will, under, they will come across these complications or these unusual situations and therefore they'll know how to handle it. What we do quite well in the UK is we have quite specific guidance about how many of an operation people should do a year to be current. And that's not true in America. So in the UK, you should be doing about 20 esophagectomies or gastrectomies a year to, to be doing enough. Whereas the average number of esophagectomies done in America in some places is less than five because they don't have that same control over it, whereas you have other surgeons in America who are doing 100. Uh, 
Mm. Um, so I think in the UK, we've adopted a numbers-based system, which, which seems to be reasonable, as long as it's sort of well-audited and well-controlled. And, and so there's like keeping up flying hours exactly. in your logbook if you're yeah. a pilot. Yeah. It's that sort of thing of keeping yeah. current, yeah. Well, I think we need to leave things there because we've run out of time. So a big thank you to you, to Chris Peters, for taking part. And to you for coming. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>